Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, we speak to David Gary about King Manor Museum in Jamaica, Queens. The author of a dissertation on Rufus King, the influential Federalist who served as Alexander Hamilton's right-hand man and later became an important anti-slavery leader. Gary is a former Gotham Center Fellow and holds a PhD from the Graduate Center at CUNY. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. It's Peter Christian Eigner, the director of the Gotham Center for New York City History. We're speaking today to David Gary, former fellow at the Gotham Center, PhD in American History from the Graduate Center, currently curator of printed materials at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, and a member of the board of trustees of King Manor Museum, the site we'll be talking about. So Dave, tell us about this building that we find in Jamaica, Queens, sitting in the middle of a park. Sure. This is the house of the King family, um, an important political dynasty in the 18th and 19th century here in New York City. Uh, It was the home first of Rufus King, who was an important early American uh, U.S. senator, He was an American diplomat who served as the ambassador to England for seven years, from 1796 to 1803. He was also a well-known anti-slavery advocate and a signer of the U.S. Constitution. So he's a very important figure, but rather under-acknowledged, I would say. It's also known as the governor's house. And this revolves around his son, John King. Uh, John King lived there after his father's death in 1827. He was a Whig congressman, um, as well as the first Republican governor of New York State being elected in 1856 in Jamaica. So the the house exists for a number of reasons. So it's kind of far out. So if you take the E train to the end of the line, that's where the house is. Um, So it could escape some of that development that took place in the center of New York. First, it was the vacation house of the King family. So they owned houses in Manhattan, and this was their summer house, their getaway house. This was a farm. Rufus lived there from 1806 to 1827. His son lived there from 1827 to 1867. Both were performing scientific agriculture, trying to improve the land in ways to get uh, large yields. Um, It was also a place you could avoid the heat of the city, uh, the pestilence of the city, and uh, a relaxing place for them to get away from the politics that they were dealing with throughout their career. And it's built in the Federalist style. At least it was put together by Rufus King in the Federalist style. Um, It's actually three houses that were put together. The first section of the house was built in the 1750s in the colonial period by an unknown architect and was then purchased by a man named Christopher Smith. Christopher Smith built a second house that was then combined with that first colonial house. King bought the house from Smith and then built a third section to make it look like like it does now. So it has rough symmetry, which is a key feature of Federalist architecture. It has five stories to it. Um, So it's quite large. It's a 28-room mansion right now. There were fewer rooms uh, when King had it, but it's been chopped up in different ways now. But it's a quite large, pretty substantial mansion. This would have been a place that a Federalist politician like King, who was a top-tier person, very wealthy, he could point to this residence and say, I'm a gentleman farmer. I'm a man of the Republic. I am trying to show the rest of the world that I have wealth, but I'm also a man of the land. Rufus is known for, I would say, four major things. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, first, he's a signer of the U.S. Constitution. Originally, he was from Maine, which was part of Massachusetts in the 18th and early 19th century. Um, So when when he started his political career, he was from Massachusetts. And he went to the Constitutional Convention in 1787, as a Massachusetts delegate, signed the document, was uh, an avid supporter of that document, and helped get it ratified. After the convention, he married a New Yorker, a woman named Mary Alsup, and then he moved to New York. 
uh, and he got involved in politics in New York through Alexander Hamilton, uh, which I'm sure many of your listeners will be interested in. But essentially, Rufus King became Alexander Hamilton's right-hand man in the U.S. Senate. Hamilton helped him get elected, and then uh, the two of them partnered to get through many of the Federalist policies that took place in the 1790s. And King was doing such a good job in the 1790s that Washington selected him as the American ambassador to Great Britain. And he served from 1796 to 1803. At a very critical period, the country was trying to weather the storm of, of the French Revolution. So King went to England to try to keep the peace uh, with the British in order to keep trade up, to sort of balance the French tax that were happening. Um, it was a tough thing for him to do, and he, he had a successful time while he was in Britain. Uh, when he returns, he purchases the house. He's essentially ousted from politics. The Federalist Party is out of power at that point. But he does stay involved in small ways, and he eventually gets elected to the Senate again in 1813, and he serves until 1825. And the most important point of his career is probably during the Missouri Crisis of 1820, when he got up and gave some very radical anti-slavery speeches. This is what he's known for uh, in many quarters. This reverberates for the next decade. King becomes a watchword for um, the anti-slavery movement and for people who are fearful of government interaction with slavery. So King becomes a, a, an anti-slavery, uh, both politician and symbol after his death. All those things make him a very important figure, even though he might, might not be known to many of your listeners. So what is it that is uh, propelling him? Is this uh, religious to do with the Enlightenment? I think both. Um, it's hard to say if it's exactly religion, but I think it's, it's a moral stand for sure. Um, so King was an Episcopalian. He was an avid churchgoer. He was very interested in religion, but he did not wear his religion on his sleeve. But I think it influenced a lot of what his decision making was. He was a man of the Enlightenment. He read many of, of the philosophs. He had a sort of moral core that was based around Enlightenment thinking, um, especially the sense of natural law thinking that there's supposed to be a goal that God has created. And you can always figure out what that goal is through reason. And King was reasoning toward uh, that, that sort of betterment of humanity. So there is this moral core to what he's trying to do. But the Federalists, while they are conservative, that sort of higher stance they had in society gave them the ability to be anti-slavery. They didn't have to rub shoulders with slaves once they were freed. There was less interaction with them. So it would be much easier for someone at the top of society to say, well, we can let these slaves be free because the Federalists would not have to do that interaction day to day. It was much more separated from them in their lives. The sort of higher status they had actually gave them the room to have these anti-slavery arguments. How did the family get their money? Did they not have slaves themselves? So the money came through, through Rufus's wife, Mary. It was very interesting. So Rufus was a, was a well-known lawyer, but he gave up his, his lawyering to become a congressman. He married well. So Mary Alsop, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was the only daughter of a man named John Alsop. And he was a, a merchant who dealt with overseas shipping. And when John also died, Rufus had basically inherited all the money from, from his father-in-law. Um, it was said to be about 50,000 pounds, which is a, a gigantic sum of money at the time. Um, so King took that money and invested it well in various places. Uh, real estate was one. Um, he invested in United States bank stocks. He also invested heavily in the China trade. He also loaned money to people, um, other founding fathers and other wealthy people in the area to, to, to run businesses or to invest in businesses. Mm -hmm. um, he was very good with his money. And unlike uh, men like Thomas Jefferson or maybe some of the Southern planters who sort of overextended themselves, he was always very clear about being out of debt or being as out of debt as possible. So that money was, was managed quite well by him. Um, and it also reflects on other things that he did. So he did very well with his personal finances. Some of that stems from his expertise in finance, which he carried over to government. 
So during the War of 1812, he was on finance committees for, for the Senate. He basically was helping a lot of these new junior senators, these war hawks who suddenly appeared during the War of 1812, who had lots of fiery ideas and lots of nationalism, but not this huge expertise. King was one of the ones who had this financial expertise, and he was involved in helping see the government through a rather difficult time, to say the least. Um, so money was something he was very good at and something he cared about a lot. Are there hard economic interests at, at, at stake here as well? Oh, immense, immensely important uh, economic stakes. But there's also constitutional stakes. So while King knows that um, there's massive money to be made in the slave market and that um, this is an important economic driver of the country, he also knows it's wrong. But he doesn't want to go about it unconstitutionally. So King, if anything, is a lawyer. He cares about the Constitution, a document he signed and, and helped push through. Um, so the argument was is that the federal government could not get involved with slavery, but that the states could get involved with slavery. So what King's argument was is that the states should do everything they can to eliminate slavery. So New York slowly abolished slavery by the 1820s, uh, and he hoped the rest of the states would do that sort of movement toward anti-slavery politics. It was a slow process that would accrue over time, and that slow process would not cause massive social upheavals and massive economic change that he was worried about. So he constantly wants to have an even keel, uh, and his way of doing that was saying the states should close off slavery wherever it can in the hopes of one day cloistering off slavery into the South and watching it wither. Because uh, as Adam Smith said, any market that can't grow will ultimately die. So King's thought was close it off constitutionally and then watch it wither over decades, maybe even longer, which, right. might, which might not be perfect, uh, might not be the thing that a lot of people would want to hear. But he thought it would be a plan that would eliminate violence and make for an easier transition for the rest of the country. Right. So this is the, the argument that later gets identified with the early Republican Party, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the origin of, of liberty. That's exactly right. So King is a, um, an early arguer for that point. And what's interesting is his son, John King, the one who takes over the House after Rufus dies, carries on that tradition. So he's very much of the Republican Party, of that strand of cordoning off slavery where it exists and illegally dealing with it ways that you possibly can. King really wasn't a joiner. There's various anti-slavery societies. He does not join any of those societies. King was very much a person who wanted to operate through politics and through law. Voluntary societies might push a little too hard. So he wanted to sort of keep things even keel, slow change, as opposed to having somebody push for more. Is that a reflection of the aristocratic nature of politics in the early years of the country? Oh, without a doubt. King is very aristocratic. He's very haughty. He's very top-down. He cares about a strong national government. He's an expert, and he thinks he's an expert, which uh, the Federalist Party sees themselves as the party that has the ability to actually make politics happen, as opposed to the, the mob, which is what they always talk about being fearful of. King thought, I can present a politics that will get the general public through. Just listen to me. We'll make it happen. I can make it work for you. And what about the contradiction with slavery? I mean, New York is the city through which more slaves pass than any other in mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. It occupies a strange position in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have these merchants who are heavily invested in enabling mm -hmm. slavery's growth throughout the early sure. period. Sure. And yet a significant number of these elites turn against the war. Mm -hmm. Fernando Wood tries to organize a number of the wealthy folks to fight for the last ditch cause of mm -hmm. resisting the war even during it mm -hmm. and fail. 
leading to the creation of things like the Republican Union League. Mm -hmm. Does King's anti-slavery position hurt him in politics as a senator for New York? No, in fact, it helps him quite a bit. It's a very nuanced position. So King is full of contradictions. So King owned slaves for very short periods in his life. He inherited several from his father-in-law. He did not want to own slaves. So he uh, did not free them, but tried to sell at least one of them. This was a, a financial headache for him after he went to England. He had an agent try to sell this slave, and there were some other owners who came forward who said, well, I own this person as well. There were some court cases, and eventually that slave was freed without him making any money on that. Um, so here he is, this man who's known for his anti-slavery uh, stance, but also has slaves at least for short periods of his life. And won't go the moral distance of freeing them outright. So how do you bridge that gap? It's a great question. Um, I think the way that King sees it is that personal slavery is the law of the land. You are allowed to own slaves. In New York State, you are allowed to own a slave. Um, but what really matters is the, is the fact that you need, to, you need to destroy it institutionally. So the individual ownership of slaves by Rufus King for even a short period is not the story that really matters. What he would say is a story that matters is creating politics and policies that will lead to institutional change, that will lead to government change, that will then destroy the institution of slavery. So there's this sort of dichotomy between the personal and the political um, or the sort of institutional that King seeks. And sort of in a continuum with the, the earliest anti-slavery <laughs> groups, including people like Hamilton, mm -hmm. who were involved with the African Colonization mm -hmm. Society and mm -hmm. later groups where quite a few num members actually owned slaves themselves. Sure. But what's interesting though, Pete, is that so the African Colonization Society is a, is a group that King mocked completely. He did not think that this extra governmental organization could ever create the wealth or gather the wealth, I should say, uh, to actually make this project happen. Uh, King always believed that government was the only thing that could make this happen. It had to happen legally through the Constitution. And until that could happen, you had to do certain things to contain slavery. The notion of actually sending millions of people back across the ocean was such a logistical feat that King thought it could never happen. So he almost, he saw it as um, almost laughable in a lot of ways. So the strategy is then to free slaves in states in which that was politically possible mm -hmm. and then ensure that the territories that are being acquired at a rapid pace mm -hmm. don't go slave. That's exactly right. Those concerns carry over with his son, John, who was also against the, who was also against the Mexican War for the same exact reasons that his father was. Uh, this containment of slavery issue was, was central to his thinking. His uh, other son, James, was also a congressman, and James was felt the same exact way. And they both used Rufus King and his stance during the Missouri crisis, this containment policy. He said, this is, this is how we're going to continue to operate. And if we continue on this path, this will lead the United States to a, a, a way out of this conundrum. Um, we all know that that wasn't possible. It really took the Civil War to make that change. Uh, that was the plan they created, and uh, that's the, the plan that didn't work. So tell us about the museum. What, what will somebody see when they go on tour? The entire house. So it'll be a behind-the-scenes tour from top to bottom. That includes the basement, where there was a wine cellar when King was, a first floor where there's a, a parlor, which is a formal meeting space where guests would be first brought into, uh, decorated in the federal style with um, very beautiful mahogany furniture, um, you'll see a portrait of King. Um, there's a beautiful fireplace where he had Italian marble shipped in uh, and put into the mantle. Um, after that, you'll go into the large dining room. This was a dining room that he designed from different dining rooms he saw in England when he was ambassador uh, in the 1790s. He took those designs back and designed this sort of semi-circular dining room. And then you go toward the back of the space and you can see where the servants would have done work in a kitchen. 
there's a there's two kitchens in the house actually a, a further one for the summer uh, which is a separate building and then you have another regular kitchen which would have been the kitchen for the winter so you can see both of those uh, servant spaces as well the second floor has a really interesting room revolving around john king so the first floor is all federalist period we're talking early 19th century interpretation the rooms in the upstairs the john king bedroom has a an antebellum period interpretation so we can talk about john king what he did as governor, what he did as congressman, that sort of that sort of interpretation is there. You can go to the third floor, which is the caretaker's apartment, which is actually really interesting. So someone lives in the house, he takes care of the grounds, he keeps, takes care of security, uh, and he opens up his apartment for the tour. So you can see the space you normally can't go in. And this would have been bedrooms for um, children, servants, and guests back in the 18th and 19th century. And then there's an attic level as well. So you can go up to this attic, which uh, you know, has HVAC systems now, but it would have been used for storage by the family in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So you can get this top-to-bottom tour of this really large mansion, uh, which sits very incongruously in Queens. So, When did the museum become a museum? Good question. This is, um, it's been a museum for 118 years. After John dies, his daughter takes over the house. She lives there until her death in 1898. At that point, the family sells what's left of the property, just 10 acres of land and the house to the to the city of New York. And the city turns the leftover property into a park, which now exists today, which is which is King Park, uh, one of the few green spaces in, in, in that area of Jamaica. And the house was then turned into a museum and given over to a colonial dames group. So it had this uh, colonial dames interpretation, spinning wheels. Anything sort of like sort of considered revolutionary or early Republic period stuff was gathered or donated by this group of ladies who managed the house for about 80 years. They put it together in various ways without this overall interpretation of King. And today, the museum has this more focused interpretation on Rufus and his son, John. The museum has been around for a long time, uh, run by a group of colonial dames group until the 1980s, when the museum was then reconsidered and made into a more professional institution like it is today. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.